We are um, looking together as a, as a church um, across all our campuses, we're looking at the letter that John wrote at the end of the first century, First John. And we are in chapter four this morning, and we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter four, which is kind of this self-contained unit that John is going to talk to us about truth and error. And he's going to talk to us about being believers who test the truth. And um, I'll start out with this. This, is kind of, this list has kind of been going around the, the, uh, the campus pastors the last couple of days. Uh, this is what they settled on. Um, things that seem false but are actually true. Here you go. There are more tigers in captivity in the USA than in the wild worldwide. True or false? True. You watch Tiger King. I, I get it. Um, here's, here's one. China used more concrete. I don't even know why this is on here. I don't even know why this is a fact. China used more concrete from 2011 to 2013 than the United States did in the entire 20th century. Yes. Here's one. You can look this up, but just get back with me here in a minute after you Google this on your phone. Bananas are berries. Strawberries are not. That's true. In fact, not only is a strawberry not a berry, neither is a raspberry or a blackberry. That's serious problems in marketing right there. It's the, like, height of fake news, right? All right. Um, all right. Some things seem true, but they're actually false. Here's one. We have all heard Napoleon was short, the Napoleon, the Napoleon complex. Truth is, he was 5'6", which meant he was fairly tall for his day. You might have heard a penny dropped off the Empire State Building will kill someone that is standing below. That's not true. It reaches a maximum speed of 35 miles an hour. It'll hurt you. It won't kill you. You've heard, don't touch a baby bird or its mother will abandon it. Not true. You've heard it takes seven years to digest gum. If you have children in here, you're still doing that? Put your hands over their ears real quick. No, that's not true. Here's one. Being a very spiritual person automatically makes you really wise and mature and correct. No, it doesn't. That's what John wants to speak to us about this morning. John is writing to a group of believers, and, 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 and I want you to hear that. He's writing to a group of believers. He's writing to a church, a church very much like Bethel. He's writing to those that are believers. He wants to affirm them. He wants to assure them in their faith. He wants them to know they are believers and gives them these series of tests of how they can know they're believers, how they can have assurance that what they believe is true. Some of that has to do with, with the content that they believe. Do, do you believe certain things, John will say? Some of that will have to be with their conduct. Do, do, do you find yourself loving others. Some of what he says will have to do 
with the role, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives as the Holy Spirit empowers them to do what they would not naturally do. And so when he comes here at the beginning, he, he's got in mind some people that have crept into the church, um, or actually they were in the church, they've crept out of the church, they're trying to creep back in, and they're trying to poison and pollute the believers that are in the church. And so this is what he says, beginning in chapter 4, um, verse 1 of First John, he says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus, uh, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to hear your word. Father, you would make it plain to us this morning by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And in the understanding of your word and seeing it rightly, would you draw us then to your son Jesus as you conform us into his likeness. Father, we want to see your glory this morning, and we do not want to leave unaffected by it. So we ask that you would do this, and we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about discernment. Um, here in 1 John 4, um, what John is reminding us is that we live in a world that is both physical and spiritual. There are things we can see, there are things that we can't see. And just because we can't see something doesn't mean that it's not real. And John here, he's assuming that it's real. He knows that it's real. And the question at hand is what is true? See, not every spirit, John is going to say, not every spirit that influences human behavior is a spirit of God or the spirit of God. In the verse just before this, John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, in the original, there weren't chapter breaks, there weren't verse numbers, and so it's meant to be read together. He's been talking about love. He will talk about love after this. At the end of chapter 3 there in, in our, in our chaptering and our numbering, he says that um, God has given us the Holy Spirit. We abide in Him. He abides in us. And the Holy Spirit of God makes that possible. He has given Him 
to us. John reminds us here that the presence of God's Spirit in the life of the believer, it's an empowering and transforming presence. But it is not the only Spirit that seeks to influence us. There are spirits from the enemy, and namely the spirit of the enemy that seeks to influence. Now, here's some observations about what John's saying. The, the contrast is between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You can see that in verse 6. How Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John's gospel from John 14 to John 16, he tells us that the Holy Spirit is the helper that he will send and what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, what He says about Him is that He is the Spirit of truth. He goes on, He says, He will dwell in us and He will dwell with us. He will teach us all things and bring to our memory the things that Jesus said. He will bear witness about Jesus. He will guide us into all truth about Jesus. He will glorify Jesus. The spirit of error, by contrast, error here means deceit, they're the spirit of deception, it is meant to cause um, someone to wander off a path. In Jude, uh, Jude verse 13, um, Jude uses the word to describe the false prophets there the ones who are in error, he calls them wandering stars. The idea is that wandering stars are, are useless for navigating direction. So John here has in mind people who, who we hear, they may claim they have the Spirit of God, and they may claim that in a number of ways. They may claim that by calling themselves part of the church or a leader of a church or saying they're a Christian or, or saying they're a believer or using Christian jargon. There are people who, by virtue of those statements, are claiming to have the Spirit of God, but they do not act or speak in ways that are of God. And so what John says is, do not believe every spirit. So faith isn't simply, so let's talk about faith. What, are, what does it mean to believe? And what is Christian belief, faith? Faith is not simply deciding what you want to believe and then believing it. Faith is not trying to make yourself believe what you feel is not true. Faith is believing what God has said and acting on it. See, to be a Christian, we, we talk about it this way. We say to be a Christian to, is to be a believer. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came and, and, and lived uh, life as a man, that He died on a cross for your sins. You accept that as true, and then you act on it. You, you believe a believer um, you become a believer because you have faith that life and strength and peace and everything else 
that Christ offers comes from Him. At the same time, there's, there's also a place for believers to be honest unbelievers, to not believe certain things. Seems like a contradiction. Um, but we're not to believe everything we hear. We're not to accept everything that comes our way without question. Um, you can't believe the truth, I think John says, uh, unless there is error that you reject. You, same way you can't love righteousness until you're ready to hate sin. You, you can't accept Christ w- without rejecting yourself as Savior. You can't, can't choose, can't have faith in Christ. You can't believe Christ is your Savior if you also believe you are your Savior. And what John is saying is that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it gives us the ability to understand when we're in the truth. It gives us the ability to understand all of the truth that God has revealed in His Word. It's the Spirit of God who makes all the difference in a believer's life. And He also wants you to know there are other spirits at work in the world today. There are false spirits, deceiving spirits who do the work of the enemy. And John says we need a test. We need to test those things. We need to test the spirits and see if they're from God. It is a word John uses. Paul uses the same word in 1 Thessalonians. He says this, but test everything, Paul says. Hold fast to what is good. The word means, the, the word test means to it makes, make a critical examination of something to determine its genuineness. And John's just not talking about theory here. You know, he's not saying, look, we should test all the spirits and we should, we should um, you know, we want, to, we want to pursue the spirit of truth and we want to reject the spirit of, Eve, of error. And he's, I'm not just saying that there's a possibility someday in the remote future that this might happen. He's saying this is happening, it is happening, and will happen. And listen, for the last 2,000 years... The spirit of error has grown broader and deeper. And the messengers of the spirit of error are the false prophets. And false prophets come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? In fact, the way the, the text reads, it's pseudo-prophets is what it is. In fact, the, the writings of some of these false prophets was called the pseudopigrapha the false writings. Listen, there are false prophets and false writings and false social media and all kinds of things out there that require that we be discerners of truth, discerners of error. A few things I would offer up. One, you've got to test the method in which the the message comes. In Jude 4, 
Jude says it this way, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Notice, he says they crept in unnoticed. False prophets and false doctrine. Error. It's so subtle. It, it, you know, it, it, it comes in the side door. It just, it just slips in. It creeps in. It, um, that's what Jude says. And the method is that it's very subtle. In fact, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when we're introduced to who Jesus says is a liar and the father of lies. And it says this about him, the serpent was more subtle, more crafty than any beast of the field. See, the best lie, the the most convincing error sounds most like the truth. There's a man named Irenaeus, and he, and he was born sometime around 130 A.D., all right? So John's writing this, let's say John's writing this around 90 A.D. Irenaeus is going to be born 40 years after this. He's born in um, Smyrna, which is Izmir today in, in Turkey. In his youth, he came to Christ under the ministry of a man named Polycarp. He learned the faith from Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. Irenaeus learned about Christ. He learned about the faith from Polycarp. In fact, he he witnessed Polycarp's death, his martyrdom, in 155. A few years later, what what would happen is Irenaeus, he would move to Lyons in in France. He would become the bishop there. Um, After the 90-year-old bishop that was there, Bishop Pothinus, he died. And his death was at the hand of Romans, and they beat him, this 90-year-old man, for two days. And his crime was was, um, that he was insisting that Christ was the Christian God. When Irenaeus became bishop, the errors that John is addressing here were full in full bloom in Irenaeus' day. And he wrote his most famous work, what he's most known for, is, is a work called Against Heresies. It's five volumes, and he wrote it in response to the Gnostics. He would listen to them. He would read what they wrote, and what they said and what they wrote Irenaeus deemed, he said, this is false and it is threatening to the church. And he had a responsibility to care for his flock. And this error was enticing those that were in the church and the Gnostics. They were false teachers and they were clever and they were artful and they clothed themselves in all this theological language. And Irenaeus said this, Error, indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed. It should at once be detected. But 
It is craftily decked out in all attractive dress so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than the truth itself. Irenaeus understood what John's telling us is that error comes in so subtly. Secondly, I'd say we should test the method Peter's second letter, he says this, but false prophets also arose among the people just as they were being false, is there false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing on themselves swift destruction. And then it says this, and many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed and in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. Peter's telling us their motive. To to exploit you is another way to say they'll make merchandise of you. That's their motive. They're out to exploit people. They may make a merchandise of you financially. They may make a merchandise, merchandise of you politically. They may make a merchandise of you personally. It's not always that they care about money. It's not always that they care about political power. It is always, though, that they care about making themselves to be a somebody. That's their motive. They will exploit you. Well, you can test their morals. Jude talks about they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Peter says they follow their sensuality. Generally, it means moral, uh, lack of moral restraint. And John, he's been applying this moral test all along in this letter, 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. It says two verses later, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. He goes on in chapter 2, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. See, a test there. Well, we can test the ministry, the fruit of their ministry. He's going to go on and say as much, you know, who, who is it that, that follows these teachers Jesus says in Matthew 7, you'll recognize these false prophets by their fruit. What's the fruit of those that are, that are supposedly telling you the truth? What's the fruit of that? You measure that by those who follow them. You measure that by the actions that that so-called truth produces. Well, finally, I would say you've got to test the message, the content of it. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And those who are against Christ, those who would seek to dethrone Christ in your life and set something else in, it, in his place. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Well, what does it mean to confess? Well, John's used it already. He's used it a couple of times. When he talks about confessing sin, here he's talking about confessing the Son. John means sincere, genuine confession, and, and, and that is evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. It, it means wholehearted, whole life profession of your faith in Christ. Now, not just conceding something's true or factual or could be true, but, but you, you profess, you confess your allegiance to it. What's the content of confession? The content of confession, the, the content of your faith, what, what we are to believe. Jude, who the book right, a couple of books right after this in the third verse, tells us that what we're believing, it's been handed down from Jesus to the disciples to you know who became the apostles, handed it down to the church. It's confirmed in the writings of the New Testament. It's been guarded and preserved for every generation of the church for 2,000 years. And John says it this way. is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. True teachers, genuine teachers, must hold to the right Jesus, not a different version of Jesus. They must accept Him. We we must accept him as the incarnate God-man sent by God the Father in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Born of a virgin, his life was sinless. His death atoned for our sin. He was resurrected from the grave in glory. It means accepting him as the only Savior. And it means hoping for his future return as the king. See, see this verse, in, in all of what John is saying, this chapter, it distinguishes true Christianity from every other religion, from every other philosophy on the planet. See, see we have what makes the gospel so unique and so utterly different from every other system of salvation. And John has summed it up in just a few words. Jesus has come. I mean, it means we don't ascend to God and find salvation there. Salvation is not a lifetime journey of trying to reach a higher plane of understanding or moral goodness or a transcendence. We do not get to God. God came to us. God initiated salvation with us. That's how salvation starts. You also have the means by which it came, the purpose for which it came. Jesus has come in the flesh this is the incarnation. John will say it in his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John's opponents, they divided Christ and Jesus. They talked about the Christ and they talked about 
Jesus. And it was two different things. They were saying Jesus was a man and the Spirit of Christ came upon him and the Spirit of Christ left him just before the death so that the, the man or, or, or the Spirit did not die, just this old raggedy old body, that he wasn't truly human. Jesus was actually a spirit who only appeared to have a body. That was the particular form John was probably wrestling with. Docetism, which means it seems like. One guy said he cast no shadow and left no footprints, for he was God, but he was not man. See, the rest of the philosophy of the world in some ways, I mean, it's a, it's a, you need to liberate yourself from the flesh. You need to escape the flesh. And the problem is the physical world and all the things around it. Some want you to believe that the physical world, it's just this illusion. And you overcome it by, by transcending, by, by um, meditation, by consciousness. Somebody try to say, oh, the world's not that bad, sin's not that bad, do anything you want, use this body up, use this world up because you die and you go as a spirit to the other world. John rejects all of those things as we should. See, Christianity says when Jesus is born, he comes in a body. He receives a body. He, he unites himself with humanity. He entered intimately into his creation. At the resurrection of Jesus, we see the salvation of God doesn't escape the flesh. Salvation redeems the flesh. It redeems what is physical. And we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where there is no death and there is no disease and there is no poverty and there is no injustice. There is no brokenness. Well, it also tells us the, the method of how we're saved. See, everything else in the world. Every other philosophy, every other religion, if you want to be saved, here's what you have to do. Sometimes they'll even say, listen, you have to love God. You have to love others. You love your family. You love your neighbor. You give to charity. You, you know, it's all about what you have to do. And John wholly rejects that. What you do is the result of being saved. It doesn't get you saved. In fact, he's going to say just a few verses down. We'll look at it next week. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice for our sins. See, God comes, pours himself out sacrificially, suffers for the people who don't love him, suffers for the people who aren't good, suffers for the people who aren't virtuous, people who weren't loving him and loving each other. 
Jesus is not just a great teacher who mainly tells us how we should live and that by living a certain way we can be saved. Jesus is a Savior who lives the life we should have lived and dies the death that we deserve in our place, paying the penalty for sin. So, that every one of us in here who's by nature not loving and not virtuous, not doers of the truth, we're saved by radical grace. This we believe we hang on to, and we reject everything to the contrary. And listen, it comes at us so subtly. Well, I'm using up my time here. Let me, let me just say a word. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, What you heard was coming and is now in the world already. It's what we're to be prepared for. We're not to be surprised. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 24. Then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. Many false prophets will arise. They'll lead many astray. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. John 16, he says that they'll kill you and they'll think that they're offering service to God when they do. Probably has the future apostle Paul in mind. In this world, he says, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Peter will say in 1 Peter 4, Do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening. Listen, we find ourselves panicked and too often re reacting to the fear that we feel. I know a lot of you spent this week surprised, feeling fear, being panicked. And I'm not here to diminish that. I am saying that Jesus told his disciples, his disciples told the church, the disciples wrote it down. The church preserved it. We should not be surprised when things do not go our way, when the world seems to not be going the way we would want it to go. So what's going on? Well, I think these sobering scriptures say exactly what was predicted. However you take that. 
Let's see if I can finish this in about four minutes. Look at verse 4. I want you to see this. Little children, you are from God. And you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's this great word. We'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. It's the word comes from the word Nike, which doesn't mean just do it. It means victory. For everyone who's been born of God, he'll say in chapter 5, verse 4, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that's overcome the world. You know what the victory is that's overcome the world? It's not a whole bunch of things that are being offered to you right now. The victory that overcomes the world, John says, is our faith. Paul will say it this way in Romans 12, using the same word, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with What word would you choose? What word have you been fed? Overcome evil with? You know what Paul says? We're good. So these believers, John's writing this because they feel beaten down. They feel weak. They feel confused. He's saying, look, take heart. You can overcome because Jesus is greater than anything you'll ever face. And listen, you, you don't, you're not yourself overcoming and conquering the false teachers. It is the Spirit of God in you. It is the strength and the power of God in you overcoming. That's why you are overcomers. Because He's greater. We don't flaunt any victories that we have because... We didn't overcome in our own strength. God's Spirit in you does the overcoming. Now, I'll make one quick point. He doesn't say, I think too many believers read it, he who is in you, and they read it, he who is in me. It's not singular, it's plural. You, the church. It doesn't mean we do not personally have the indwelling Holy Spirit, nor do we personally have the assurance of the Holy Spirit's presence. We have that, yes. But we do, we must not attempt our battle against the spirits of Satan alone. We need others. Here's what you can watch for. This is how the error comes. It usually comes from a from an authority figure who wants to make decisions, set directions, exert their power over a group or, or a group of in, or individuals. You want to stay away from that. Anyone who claims to have a new truth or new revelation, stay away from that. Here's one for you to stay away from. You ready? The Bible's absolutely serious about this. Those who would attack the church, the Christian church, false teachers, spirits of error take great pains to sow disunity in the Christian church. Those that twist doctrine 
trying to prove something's unreasonable, usually related to the Trinity or the deity or humanity of Jesus, false teachers will always promote salvation by works. The necessary actions, the meetings, the trainings, the the workings. False teachers undermine the assurance of eternal life in God's grace. They teach salvation can be found in the adherence of their teaching or their practice. Not that salvation is found in the merciful love of God and His Son, Jesus. All right. So what does this mean for us? What is it supposed to do for us? If you were to read these verses and on the surface of it, here's what it says. Christianity is absolutely exclusive, and we tolerate no other ideas with regard to salvation. And I would say you then read that rightly. And yet we live in this maze of inclusivity. And when you begin to talk about Christianity, the way we talk about it this morning, you think, well, this is exclusive, and we've said we're the only right ones, and we are the only ones that have truth, and, 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 and you can't say that. You can't say that in 2020. You can't say that anymore. And I would say, I, yes, we, yes, you absolutely can say that. We're supposed to say that. We do believe that for our good, for the good of the whole world. Listen, one of the great paradoxes, I'm going to take two more minutes. One of the great paradoxes is Christianity, you know, Christianity was born in the midst of of an inclusivity. The, The Romans, they prided themselves on inclusivity. Here's what they say, everybody has a God. You can have your own God. I have my God, you have your gods. There's gods for everybody. Your truth's no better than my truth. It was the height of inclusivity. The Christians came along and they said, no, Jesus is Lord of all. Only Jesus In fact, only so to the degree we reject everything else. And at the same time, their exclusivity in doctrine created a community of people that the inclusivity of Rome around them never could. See, the Greeks and the Romans, they never mixed the rich and the poor. Christians did it. Never mixed races, Jews or Gentiles. The Christians did it. An exclusive belief that Jesus is God led to the most humble, peace-loving, 
inclusive people. See, if Jesus is who he says he is, God made flesh, more than just a great teacher, philosopher, someone to be quoted for a soundbite, but if he's really God, then in Jesus Christ, who God is became visible to us. The love of God became visible. It became tangible. The ultimate reality of how things are becomes visible. And that ultimate reality that became visible was a man on a cross Loving people who did not love it. Loving people who hated him. See, truth, reality, ultimate reality, for believers, for Christians, is the man Jesus on a cross who was also God. Loving people who didn't love him, forgiving people who were abusing him, sacrificially serving people who opposed him. And the early Christians, they took that to heart because that was their ultimate reality of what life was supposed to look like. How could they do anything else? Arrhenius wrote about Polycarp's martyrdom. He was the bishop of Smyrna, he, and he knew it was coming. He was an old man, probably in his 80s. The proconsul was like the governor. He was taking all the young guys who were Christians. I mean, Polycarp had an influence over a generation of believers. These young Christians would be drug into the stadium, and the proconsul would say, well, if you don't deny Christ and confess Caesar's Lord, we're going to we'll unleash the beasts on you and these Young men in their bravery, they just take off running towards the beasts. And it made the proconsul so mad. Because there's a whole crowd around. He sends everybody away. And the way that Arrhenius records it, it's called the martyrdom of Polycarp. He records the whole thing. The proconsul yells at the top of his lungs, Find Polycarp! So the men go. They, and he knew it was coming. Well, so they did find him. The, the police of the day, they found him. And he wasn't hiding. He, he'd just been carrying on. And Arrhenius records it like this. He says, so when, when he heard that they had arrived, the police, to his house, he went and he talked with them. While those who were present marveled at his age and his composure and wondered why they were... So, where there was so much eagerness for the arrest of an old man like him. Then he immediately ordered that a table be set for them to eat and drink as much as they wished at the hour. And he asked him to grant him an hour so that he might pray undisturbed. He ended up praying for two. They wouldn't disturb him. They wouldn't interrupt him. They were mesmerized. They arrest him. They're taking him back. The police, they're pleading with this old man. They say, listen, just say Caesar's Lord. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. Just say it. What harm could it, could it do? And he said, I'm not about to do what you're suggesting. Take him to the arena. Comes before the proconsul, the magistrate, who's the right hand of the emperor. 
She says, swear the oath and I'll release you. Release you. Revile Christ. And he says, for 86 years I've been a ser- his servant and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He gets threatened with wild beasts, threatened to be burned alive. What are you waiting for? Come and do it, he says. The verdict was, this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches many not to sacrifice or worship. So they build a bonfire, built a big pyre. He steps in it on his own. He doesn't have to be restrained. He begins to pray out loud. The men are holding the things, are waiting to light it. They don't, finally, he says, amen. They think, okay, so we'll light it. They light it, and guess what? He doesn't burn. And when the lawless men eventually realized that the body could not be consumed by the fire, they ordered an executioner to go, to st- go up to him and to stab him with a dagger. When they did that, the crowds that were around watching, who had been cheering and chanting it on, they just, they were astonished. They sat silent. This is how Polycarp, this is the official recording of his death. Now, just listen to this. Just listen to the recording of his death in light of the the week we're all living, whether it's a good week or a bad week for you. This is what he says. Now the blessed Polycarp, who was martyred on the second day of the first part of the month, and it's a February 22nd is how it works out. Seven days before the calendar of March. He says this. On a great Sabbath, about 2 o'clock p.m., he was arrested by Herod when Philip of Tralles was the high priest during the proconsul of Stasius Quadraticus. But while Jesus Christ was reigning as king forever, To him be glory and honor and majesty and the eternal throne from generation to generation. Amen. The early believers were unfazed by who sat on earthly thrones. Because Jesus reigned as king forever. And guess what? He still does. The spirit of truth confirms that in our hearts. The spirit of truth protects us from the error that's out there if we will be discerning. Well, my time's up. I've said all I'm going to say. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come back together next week. All right, Father, thanks for the...